Friends, we've come to the close of our Mark series, though this is the first Sunday of the Advent season. And the Advent, of course, is when we celebrate the incarnation, when the Son of God, the creator of heaven and earth, became one with his creation. He entered into creation and became one of the creatures. Well, the reason the incarnation is so important is why Jesus came, what he came to do to fulfill God's desire for his mission in this world. And as we've seen the last few weeks, it wasn't easy. As Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and faced a cup full of the wrath of God upon the sins of the world. Your sin, my sin, the sins of all of us were piled upon Jesus. Oh, it was a daunting task. And he prayed, Lord, if it be your will, may this cup pass by. But not my will, Father, your will be done. And God's will was played out in its fullness as Jesus went through the charade of a kangaroo court. He was condemned. He was deserted. And as we focused last week, he died upon the cruel cross in our place. He provided atonement. He paid for our sins. And yet that act, beginning at the cross for the death of Christ, that pivotal act in human history was only completed at the resurrection, Easter morning. And though it's the beginning of the Christmas season, we finish this series of messages with the focus of the victory we have through the Easter resurrection of Jesus. It was such an important event that his opponents, though they were baffled by it, they were frightened by it, at all costs, they tried to deny it. We see one of the great attempted cover-ups in history, beginning of all places, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28. And I'll read a little more than what's on the screen. Uh, This is the passage right before the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the passage that we call the Great Commission. Just before the Great Commission, where Jesus commissions his followers to uh, go into all the world and preach the good news, just before the Great Commission... We see this, the great lie. It says that in verse 12 and following, when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers, these are the soldiers who the angels uh, struck down in fear and they opened the tomb of Jesus. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were sleeping. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story, that Jesus' dead body was stolen by his disciples, this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. What was so terrible in their eyes about the resurrection of Jesus, the possibility of resurrection of Jesus in fulfillment with what this rabbi from Galilee had said in the past. Why did it need to be denied? Why did it need to be covered up? The reality is, is that the resurrection is the pivotal event in history. It makes all the difference. And that Easter message is, as I've entitled the sermon, he is risen. That's the good news. God so loved the world that he gave his son. His son took our sins, died for our sins. But the good news is complete with the rec- the, the uh, announcement that he is risen, that life has conquered 
death. And that through faith in Jesus, we too may have eternal life with him. It's the best news of all. He is risen. Well, we complete our study in the Gospel of Mark with Mark's account of Easter morning. It's a brief account, and it only records one of the events of that morning. There's many encounters, as you look through the four Gospels, many encounters of people coming to the empty tomb, being startled by the fact that Jesus' body, his body bearing the wounds of the cross that was laid there uh, on Good Friday, is no longer there. They encounter angels which tell them the good news of Easter morning, as well as a select few of them encounter the risen Lord himself. We think especially of Mary from Magdalene. We begin in Mark chapter 16, the first eight verses. When the Sabbath was over, now remember this is key because that Sabbath was the most special Sabbath of the year. It was the Day of Atonement. It was the Passover festival. It was the great festival of Judaism. When the Sabbath was over, <clears throat> Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, "Who will roll away the who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb?" But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, <clears throat> they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This first of the many encounters of Easter morning. This case with the angels who announced the good news of Jesus' resurrection. The empty tomb, he is not here. As we go along and look at the facts of the resurrection, we see how important it is for what it has done for us. First thing we want to notice this morning is the fact that the resurrection is the vital fact of Christianity, of the whole Christian faith. The Apostle Paul says, as we'll see in a moment, that if you try to remove the resurrection, it all tumbles down. Some of you at home have in your games closet that table game Jenga. You know the one where the blocks are stacked, the little blocks are stacked higher and higher, and you try to pull out little blocks without the whole edifice come crashing down. It always does at the end, and then that person loses. Well, the Bible says that if you deny the resurrection of Jesus, that if he never rose from the dead that his attempt to pay for the attempts of mankind would have been futile, and your faith in him is equally futile. And in fact, Paul says that if Jesus wasn't raised, Christians suffering for the cause of Christ in the world today are to be pitied above all men. Now that's a vital fact. 
And this is what the Apostle Paul says. We're going to read a number of passages from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. We often call it the resurrection chapter. For in no chapter in the New Testament do you see the meaning and the truth of the resurrection of Jesus taught so clearly as 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 13, we call that the love chapter. Paul talks about that greatest of Christian virtues, the virtue of love. And then in chapter 15, he talks about the greatest truth of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus. It is the vital fact. As we first turn to 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, looking at the importance of the resurrection, we begin in verse 3 and read down to verse 8. Paul writing to the church in Corinth says this, for what I received, I passed on to you. We've heard him say that before around the Lord's table for what I received. I passed on to you as of first importance. Now get that. Paul says, this is it. Pay attention. This is of first importance. This is the most important teaching of the Christian faith that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, He appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. That funny last phrase, Paul says, I'm the last of the apostles. I'm like the vastly overdue baby. He says, Jesus didn't appear to me on Easter morning. He appeared to Paul, as you remember, on the road to Damascus as Paul, the great persecutor of the church, was going to have Christians imprisoned and put to death. And Jesus met him face to face. And changed his life and his heart forever. Paul says the resurrection of Jesus is of first importance. Our faith depends on it. Further down, that point is made so clearly in 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 12, Paul says this. Because some of the people, it seems, you know, his letters, whenever there's a church name attached to the letter, generally that letter is written for an issue or a reason in the church. Paul's writing first to commend them and to encourage them, but also to deal with issues the church is having. And it seems that one of the issues the church in Corinth was dealing with is that there were teachers who had come into their midst who had told them that the resurrection of Jesus didn't really happen. It's not that important whether or not it happened. And friends, let me tell you, we still hear that same thing today. There are people today, people who are empirical in thought, those people who believe that science is their religion, that matter is all that matters. Well, they'll deny the resurrection till the cows come home because it's the greatest of miracles. It doesn't fit their worldview. And there are those who claim to be Christians who are very liberal in their leanings, who believe that the resurrection, that's just a a nice story. It's like a parable to encourage us that we should uh, spiritualize it, not believe that crudely it actually happened. 
Because if you scratch a spiritualizer, you'll always find a, an empiricist down deep. Somebody who doesn't really believe the power of God revealed in the Bible. But Paul says it has to have happened or Christianity tumbles down. Responding to those false teachers, Paul says in verse 12, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. They denied that the saints would be resurrected. And Paul says, if that's true, if there's no resurrection, then that applies to Jesus. And then it all tumbles down. The resurrection of Jesus makes all the difference. If it doesn't, it's just religion. It's just play acting. It's just going through the motions. You see people, they may attend a certain church, but there's no real faith. There's no real spiritual vitality. It's more like, Nice people doing good works. It's like social work. I, I see a lot of people, you know, they're pastors, but really they're social workers. Let's be honest. Not knocking the nice things they do, but there's no spiritual power there. There's no life in the life-giving message of Jesus. And that would be so... Well, I have a quote this morning. I have a number of quotes, but the first is from, from uh, Jared Wilson. He's a wonderful Christian author. He says, if the resurrection isn't true, we should all go home. Religion makes a lame hobby. And that's what it is. It's just a hobby. If there's no resurrection truth or power behind it, no eternal life, if it's not true, we should all go home. Religion makes a lame hobby. Not only is it of the vital fact, but it did so much for us. Jesus' resurrection, it opened the way for us, for our resurrection, for our eternal life. Now, it may seem funny that I'm talking about Jesus' resurrection opening the way, but the graphic I've chosen on the screen to represent that is Jesus with a sickle in his hand in the field, the Lord of the harvest, that beautiful painting, Jesus, the Lord of the harvest. I love that painting. But you know the resurrection is a harvest event? First, before we get to the scripture, when did it take place? It took place on the first day of the week, following, remember, following the Sabbath, the great Sabbath, the Passover. If you know your Bible, for instance, Leviticus 23, you'll know that a Jewish festival took place on the day of that resurrection, Easter Sunday. It was called the Festival of First Fruits. And now it was based on a historic event. We see it in the book of Exodus. It took place on the day the children of Israel left Egypt. Left Egypt. Out of slavery. Free at last. Now isn't that wonderful that Jesus broke the power of sin and death. And his resurrection frees us from sin, frees us from death. On the same day the children of Israel escaped the bondage of slavery. That's not an accident, friends. That's not an accident. And the festival that they celebrated, their escape from Egypt, the festival of 
festival of first fruits? Now that's kind of interesting because it happened right at the time that the grain was beginning to ripen. And the farmers would go through their field at this time of year and they would find the ripe grain. Most of the field would still be green, but they'd find the ripe ones and they'd take it and they'd make a sheave out of it and they'd bring it to the temple where the priest would take it before the Lord and not burn it. He would wave it. He would wave it to God as a signal. The first fruits are here. And they said, well, the first fruits, that shows that when the harvest comes, it's all a blessing from God. These first fruits are a guarantee that God has blessed us with the following harvest. And that's what scripture says. Jesus resurrected on the first on the festival of first fruits. He was the first of the resurrected ones to live eternally. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. And friends, you and I, we're the great harvest to come. On that great getting up day, as the old spiritual says, when you and I, the graves will break open and we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, gloriously resurrected. <laughs> That's the great harvest that Jesus, the first fruits of resurrection, points to and assures us of and guarantees us of. We often miss that important truth. We find that in 1 Corinthians again, the Apostle Paul in that great resurrection chapter, the last passage we'll look at from there, beginning in verse 20, with all of that about the first fruits and the bondage out of the bondage in Egypt in mind, keep in mind as we read this, verse 20, but Christ has indeed, remember people said, no, he's not resurrected, but Paul corrects them, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ, Easter morning, the first fruits, then when he comes, that's the return of Jesus, when he comes, those who belong to him, that's our resurrection. It's guaranteed by Jesus, the first fruits. You see a preview of your resurrection in the great resurrection event of Jesus, not only on Easter morning, but also the morning of the festival of first fruits. It all ties together. And for that, we live this life with no fear of death. No fear. Most people see death as the worst. But for the Christian, after the worst comes, the best happens. The best always follows the worst for the believer. For our resurrection is assured. It's a living hope. And that's the point that the Apostle Peter makes in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Just want to make, make a point, something that uh, I, I skipped over a few minutes ago. It's a, it's a quote by Lee Strobel. Uh, and the quote, if you can call that up, Kendi, Lee Strobel writes that Jesus did not come into the world to make bad people good. He came into the world to make dead 
people live. That's the beauty of it. That's what he did. That living hope we have is not that Jesus reforms us, that he makes bad people into nice people, these little holy Joes that people kind of resent. (laughs) He came into a world where we were spiritually dead and we were heading for a godless eternity and through the resurrection, what he did for us in atoning for our sins on the cross and breaking the power of sin and death, that cycle that had held mankind in its sway for so many years. (laughs) He made dead people alive. That's what Jesus came to do. Lee Strobel, the former, the former journalist who converted uh, to Christianity as he was seeking to uh, deny it, he puts it so clearly. Jesus opened the way. He is the first fruits. Also, the resurrection of Jesus, how do we apply it to our lives? It says that all mankind can live through the resurrection of Jesus, but we know most go to a godless eternity because they reject Jesus. How does it become effective for you and I? Well, friends, simply put, it becomes ours by faith. Jesus' resurrection is ours by faith, by believing in it, by trusting him for it. Not trusting in yourself, in your good works, but what Jesus did for you. I recall that beautiful passage as Jesus tarried waiting for the bad news to follow that his friend Lazarus who was sick and he could have healed but he didn't come the Lazarus had died so Jesus comes to the village of Bethany and he meets the sisters Mary and Martha who questioned him Lord why didn't you come you could have healed him but Jesus knew God's greater glory was going to be achieved through what happened there And he came and he greets Martha who's grieving and she questions his delay. And Jesus has a question for her. He says, Martha, and we see in John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said to her, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Jesus asked the question, a faith, do you believe? And she answers, yes, I do. I do believe. Jesus says that we will never die, not physically, He's not guaranteeing that those who put their faith in him will never experience physical death. But the second death, separation from God for eternity, that is now off the table. Though you may die physically, you will be resurrected physically as well. But you will never die spiritually. For absent from the body is home with the Lord. As soon as your eyes close in this world in death, they open and see the face of Jesus in eternity. I will come and take you to be with me, Jesus says, of our physical deaths. But it all is based on faith. Do you believe it? Do you believe? Another quote by a wonderful author, 
Tim Keller, who writes so many wonderful books on the faith. He says, putting our faith in Christ is not about trying harder. It means transferring our trust away from ourselves and resting in Him. People who try to earn their way into heaven with good works, they're putting their faith in themselves. But that's bankrupt. That's the wrong way. The only way is to put your trust in Jesus, His good work for you on the cross and the empty tomb as God raised Him to eternal life. It's a question of faith. But once we're saved by faith through the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus, then what? The Bible says, then you are in Christ. His death on the cross, if you're in Christ, that's your death to sin. Jesus died in your place. And the life you live, well, Jesus now lives through us, the life of Christ. Sometimes we call the Christian life living the life of Christ. If we try to do that in our own efforts, we'll fail every time. But as we lean into Him in trust and faith, look into His Word for our wisdom and guidance, pray about big decisions, and seek to walk side by side with Jesus through the ups and downs of life, keeping close accounts with Him as we pray without ceasing, carrying on that inner conversation with Him, knowing that He'll never leave us or forsake us, His resurrection life, becomes the power for living. The resurrection of Jesus is our power for living. Now that theological truth I've just mentioned is spelled out so clearly in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 6. Now Romans chapter 6, if you had to put a name on the whole chapter, you'd say, well, that's the baptism chapter. But the interesting thing is it's not baptism as you see in the baptistry, physical baptism. The baptism that Paul mentions in Romans chapter 6 is that immersion, because that's what baptism means, to immerse into, to dunk into. That's your immersion spiritually in Jesus. You're unified with Christ through faith in Him. And if you're in Jesus and He is in you, His resurrected life is lived out today through you and I. Physical baptism is a symbol that points to that spiritual reality that the Apostle Paul mentions here. So in Romans chapter 6, I'll pick up reading for a few verses in verse 3. Paul says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now remember, Paul's not talking about physical baptism. He's talking about salvation. When you're saved, you are immersed now in Jesus. When God looks at you, he sees you in his son. You are in Christ. Paul says, don't you realize that all of us who were baptized, immersed into Christ Jesus, were immersed into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just, and the in order means for this purpose, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. The resurrection life that we live today. He continues in verse 5, If we've been united with Him like this in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. 
For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. In Christ, through faith in Christ, you are in him. Sin has no hold on us. Oh, we still sin. We choose that every day. But friends, you have the freedom to choose God over sin. We need to die to sin. As Paul says, I need to die daily. That's why it's so important to begin the day with God. I make a little devotional like daily bread part of my morning routine. Just to get you thinking along those lines. Today, Christ in me, the hope of glory. I want Jesus to live in me. Lord, whoever you send across my path, I want them to experience your love through me today. You know, when you start your day that way and we're intentional about it, and ask the Holy Spirit to empower us and guide us, then we can live out the life of Christ as we allow him day by day to live through us. It's a wonderful thing. And that's what the world needs today. Christians who take this seriously. He was a great man of God, especially reaching out to those in prisons through prison fellowship. But Charles Colson, before he passed away recently, he wrote in one of his books, he says, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is more powerful than anything else we believe. By his resurrection, Jesus proved he is who he says he is. Be confident in this truth. Stand on the holy word of God. Don't sell the world a false bill of goods. Preach the word. Defend the faith. Live the faith. Christ in you, a living hope, the hope of glory. Friends, as we wrap up this study of the book of Mark, we've seen Jesus active in the world, walking through the world. His public ministry only encompassed about three years, but now he is a risen Savior at his Father's right hand, interceding for us as we are his hands, his feet, and his voice in the world today. May Christ live through us today and throughout this coming Advent season. It's a dark time with the COVID pandemic, but may we shine the light of God's love to a hurting world. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the truth of the resurrection. Father, your word ties together so amazingly all the way back, Lord, as the children of Israel the nation coming out of bondage and slavery. Lord, you set them as a first fruit. They were the first nation who was set aside to you, consecrated to you as their God. Father, they're the first fruits because one day we know all nations' knees will bow. All tongues will confess. And Lord, in the same way Jesus, the first fruit of those risen from the grave, Lord, one day we all will be part of that great harvest if we put our faith in Jesus. Lord, in doing that, may we live the resurrection life today as Christ lives in us through the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for the blessings of this morning. Lord, even with the restrictions we have, we rejoice in the fact that we can gather together in person and, Lord, virtually to experience the love of Christ and the truth of God revealed through your word. Now, Lord, as we leave this place of worship, 
Lord, empower us and send us out to our mission field. We pray all of this in Jesus' loving name. Amen. God bless.